episode 19 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I am Alan Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith, now of The Athletic. We'll get to that in a second. But first, on this episode, it's all about you, the listeners. We asked for your questions, and man, did you deliver. So we'll get you the insight and answers you deserve. I may even submit some questions by the time this show is over. That plus our preview for Pocono, something tells me we will mention restarts maybe once or twice in this episode. But first, as always, this is episode 19 of Positive Regression. This is the Loy Allen Jr. edition. <laughs> David, this is a very positive regression-like pick uh, for what we do each week. And and dare I say, we might have to acknowledge that some people in our audience don't know the name Loy Allen Jr. This is a deep cut uh, <laughs> across four seasons. And considering he didn't complete an entire season's worth of races, I had to extrapolate his results. Long story short, Loy Allen, a negative 0.863 P ROA. Um, okay, wait, let's give a little background first. Look, Loy Allen Jr., if you don't know, a very 90s driver. Yes. He drove the number 19 Hooters car, very famous paint scheme. He drove the Hooters car, number 19 Hooters also car. Yep. And is most famously known for winning the pole in the 1994 Daytona 500, really out of nowhere. It's hard to put in context. Imagine like, you know, Quinn Huff or somebody winning the pole for the Daytona 500. Kind of out of nowhere. I could well, go further in the 1994 season. Okay, David, I, where do you start? I, I I would disagree that those polls came out of nowhere. He he did win polls. That's, that's kind of all he did. He won five polls in 18 ARCA starts. Uh, that's kind of nuts. Uh, three of them were on the drafting tracks, and his first poll in the Cup Series was at Daytona. And then later that year, he won polls at Atlanta and Darlington. Loy Allen was not good, uh, at least not at the Cup Series level anyway. But those polls, Allen, th- that's interesting. Um, also interesting, he failed to qualify for yeah. 22 races during the span. And his age 29 season coming in 1995 resulted in a 1.045 peer in an abbreviated 11 race schedule. Yeah, that's an adequate enough point for me to end on. Um, Alan, sometimes the driver's numbers tell you exactly the kind of driver they were. In the case of Loy Allen, his numbers are all over the place. What a bizarre, fleeting career. Um, he drove for Junior Johnson and was canned <laughs> after four races. Man, um, this is so 90s. It is such a deep cut. I feel like we're the only NASCAR podcast that will ever have an appreciation for Loy Allen Jr. I remember making jokes when I was 11 years old because Loy Allen was literally pole or provisional. Like you couldn't think of another driver like him. This was back when they had provisionals. You know, if you didn't qualify for the race, you got in. There were so many provisionals. You just made it on the end when it was a 43 car field. And, and again, yeah, he was either the pole, three poles in 1994 and 11 times he didn't even make the race in the same season. It made no sense. It had this beautiful, historic paint scheme, the pole setter for the 1994 Daytona 500, and he is still etched in my mind as the driver of the 19 car, Loy Allen Jr. And what tires was he on when he won that Daytona pole? Was he on Hoosiers? 
Yes, he was. Wow, ninety four. What a year, baby! <laughs> <laughs> not 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 too bad of a season. Yeah, well, hey, I'm glad we brought him up. So, uh, I mean, time flies, man. Twenty years since he has been in a race. Nineteen ninety nine was his final season, at least racing at the big level. So crazy to think how much time has gone by. Well, the big news really of this week, though, after Loy Allen Jr., you know, making getting a mention here on Positive Regression, is that, David, you have a new job. Uh, we announce you always as writing for motorsportsanalytics.com. You are now a member of The Athletic. I'll let you take it from there. But first of all, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Uh uh, for those that don't know, The Athletic is an emerging uh, sports journalism giant, I would say, at this point. Um, they've got Peter Gammons. They've got Jonah Carey, Ken Rosenthal on the baseball side. They have David Aldridge uh, for their NBA vertical. And last week, they launched a motorsports vertical with Jeff Gluck, Jordan Bianchi, Allison Sneag, Bob Kravitz, and me. And... Uh, my plan, I will write three times a week. All my NASCAR Cup Series written analysis will be there. I believe my pieces will appear every Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. But for those curious, uh, why do this? Well, this allows me to stop with the agency and consulting work, which demands the majority of my time. And I have never had this much time to devote to writing and researching and podcasting. Uh, this is it. Journalism is now my full-time gig. I am very much looking forward to it. As for motorsportsanalytics.com, it will soldier on. All the stats will still be there. Uh, that is where they are housed. I have big plans for analysis of Xfinity, Trucks, and Arca. I'll have Chris Mitchell uh, back during the summer months. We had him on our uh, Prospects episode. Uh, it's good. I'm excited, and not to bury the lead, but as for positive regression, we are still here. Alan and I have conversations every day. I cherish them, and we just happen to record one of them once a week. Uh, we will keep doing that. Positive regression every Thursday morning, even with a new job. Yes, and we have those conversations because I am a fan of your work. Not only am I a partner in this, I am also a client, have been for a long time. And David, that's why I want to just congratulate you again because I have been a fan of your work. It has made me a better race fan, a better broadcaster, certainly, with the, the knowledge that you provide. And you are getting a bigger audience now, and more people will benefit from it, and they will become smarter fans, just like I have. And I am sincere in all this. So again, congratulations. I look forward to the knowledge you are about to spread on people because a lot more eyeballs are going to benefit from it. And that is a good thing for this fan base. Oh, you can't see me, but I'm blushing. Uh, if I was not, if I was not just emotionally dead inside, I might even shed a tear for that. But thank you so much, Alan. And, uh, all the support over social media from my readers has been great. Uh, I know there have been questions from Motorsports Analytics subscribers, but I assure you I will have more time to work on motorsportsanalytics.com than I ever have in my entire life. So there will be something on there. I will be writing. That is what I intend to do. Uh, the website is alive and well. So if you're a subscriber, fear not. Uh, it'll look different, but there will still be a ton of content to sift through. Your lack of emotion actually makes you a, a really good writer. So well, that's, an, that's, totally, that's another discussion for another day. We can talk about that. But let's get back to uh, this week. We You asked, we asked uh, uh, out on Twitter and social media 
for questions from our listeners. And man, David, did they deliver. So let's get right to them because we are going to give them answers. Um, as you say, we flashed the bat signal and everyone came running. So uh, first off, we'll start off bake from Bake Money 125 Bake Money 125 wants to know, if Google came in as a sponsor and gave Rick Ware Racing $1 million for one upcoming race, would that car run and finish in the top 10? Quite the hmm. hypothetical. Uh, a good question. A broad question. <laughs> $1 million to Rick Ware, Rick Ware Racing. Would the car run in the top 10? David, not, be, not being as educated as quite you are on this, I'm going to say absolutely not. Um, I'm going to be both technical and specific when trying to answer Bake Money's question and say the short answer, yeah, not a chance. Uh, no way. Uh, even if you just gave it to the best driver, put, give the full million to Kyle Bush and say, go give me a top 10 in this car. I, I don't believe it would happen. Uh, I'm taking, I'm putting the drafting tracks of Daytona and Talladega. I'm not factoring that into this. So if that's the game we're playing at home, I'm not factoring that into here. And also, I just think the costs are too much. You know, I did a program once with ECR engine builders and they said, Two horsepower can be the equivalent of $1 million. If you want to gain two more horsepower, that's how much money and research you need to get just two horsepower. I don't think $1 million would be enough to get Rick Ware Racing, unfortunately, a top 10 at, say, an intermediate track like a Kansas or Chicagoland, what have you. That's just what I believe. Now, if they had more time, if that $1 million was the start of an investment and, and could buy them more equipment that could lead to more research and maybe attract more people, maybe. But one race, $1 million, I don't see it happening. I agree with you. Uh, my answer is no, because while money can buy a lot of things, it can buy most things, uh, it cannot buy time. And that is what you need time to hire the right people, establish an engineering culture and manufacturing processes in order to turn around a wayward vessel, if you will, like Rick Ware Racing. I think, and, and you've mentioned this on a previous episode, the closest thing that we've seen to a team come out of the gate and have immediate good results, uh, Ray Evernham Motorsports, uh, when Dodge first came into uh, came back to NASCAR. But what the public did not see was what was happening behind the scenes for about a year and a half to prepare for such a grand debut. If you think back to Toyota's debut, their initial team crop was Michael Waldrop Racing, Bill Davis Racing, and Team Red Bull. And they were having difficulties qualifying for races. Um, there is no guarantee, even if you do throw a lot of money at the problem, it takes time. You really have to develop a program uh, that's able to rattle off top 10 finishes. And FYI, just for everyone listening, I know a million dollars sounds like a lot of money, but it probably won't go as far in NASCAR as you think it might. The top tier rack rate for sponsorship right now in the NASCAR Cup Series is around $350,000 per race. I bet a million dollars would actually get you three races with a top-end team, maybe four, and if you want five, the team will withhold the right to sell space on the quarter panel. But your dollar not going too far, a million can help, but it's not going to buy you immediate results. There you have it. Great question, though. 
Moving on to the second question. This one from Tim Bloom. Do you think the age 39 phenomenon will change to a lower age now that cup drivers are starting younger? For example, William Byron will have another 18 more seasons to race before he hits 39. And David, of course, Tim is referring to um, your stat that and your research that, that shows peak production, peak performance comes at age for a driver comes at age 39. That is an average, correct? Uh, of course, the way to put it, but age 39 is peak production for a driver. Uh, do we think that number will change now that drivers are starting younger in the Cup Series? Okay, so two things to unpack here. One, I don't believe peak age has anything to do with the years of experience a driver has. Biology informs when human beings are at their athletic best or physical best. And for right now, for race car drivers, age 39 represents the nexus between accrued knowledge and cognitive functions like depth perception and peripheral vision. Uh, sight is vitally important when driving a race car. Uh, consider what the United States Air Force does for fighter pilots. There is a strict criterion for vision. The eye exam there is a really big deal. Around the age of 40, eyesight tends to fade a little bit, and that is true for NASCAR drivers. Uh, and that brings me to my second thing. I think if the peak age changes, it gets older, not younger. Wow. Because right off the bat, I know of a perfectly legal form of performance enhancement for NASCAR drivers. Um, you care to guess what that is, Alan? Fixing your eyes. LASIK surgery. LASIK yes. surgery. That's um, what I meant. I don't, I don't <laughs> know of any driver that's had it yet, but I would guess that probably could prolong the career of a driver in as much as it can improve the eyesight. One thing that we can't do anything about, though, is hand-eye coordination. And I'll ask you again. Do you care to guess what the peak age for a human being when it comes to hand-eye coordination is? 39? Sadly, it is not <laughs> 39. There was um, there was research done by the University of California that determined 24 is the peak age oh, for hand-eye coordination. Um, they found this... Really interesting. It's a, it's a good read. Um, they found this by evaluating over 3,000 players ages 16 to 44 of the video game StarCraft II. Maybe some of our listeners are StarCraft II players. Uh, but hand-eye coordination, it seems, mostly declining for every race car driver already. Uh, you know, Alan, there's been a rise in uh, the video gaming community, esports, Lately, I think it'll be interesting to make note of how many top eSport participants are over the age of 24. If that study is uh, to be believed, it won't be very many. And not even William Byron. I, I think this question came up even earlier this season, just with, say, Kyle Busch, you know, who's 34, 35, and people are, you know, still, we're still pointing out. Uh, Jeff Gluck was nice to point it out as well. Hey, you know, according to this 39 thing, Kyle Busch is getting even better. You know, he still has five years to go before he's at his peak production. So I, I think even people are questioning it then. So it's interesting to think about. See, but I think on the other hand, I, th I have a greater appreciation for what Kyle Busch is doing right now. When I see a young talent have a lot of success 
out of the gate, uh, it is a reason for optimism in more ways than just we've created another star to have in the NASCAR Cup Series. We're potentially looking at a long career that can stand the test of time in the annals of history. Good stuff. Good question. Love that age. We're going to get people talking, especially with you on The Athletic now. People are, we're going to hammer the age 39 thing home. It's going to be great. All right. Next up from E.B. Beaumont. I hope I'm saying that correctly, but from E.B. Beaumont wants to know, I'm watching an old ARCA race at Salem and it made me wonder if you had to pick one short track to put prospects on to evaluate talent, which track would it be? That's a good question. Alan, do you have an answer? Just curious. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it. Look, I don't have a specific answer, but I will have a follow-up question. So I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I like this question in that it is, uh, subjective. There are a lot of answers, but, uh, EB said short track. So I will say New Smyrna Speedway in Florida. Uh, a half mile track, very gritty, one and a half grooves which means in order to pass, a driver is going to have to get out of his comfort zone and and rough a competitor up a little bit. There will be contact. It's fast. A little bit of progressive banking. And there aren't many drivers that call it a home track. So at least when I spend time there, I'm watching guys who aren't totally familiar with the place. But I'm familiar. And, uh, and I know what to look for. So that is, um, that's typically my fallback on that. But if not New Smyrna, I would say Thompson Speedway in Connecticut. Nice. Winchester Speedway in Indiana. Uh, the Winchester 400 is one of my favorite short track events. Uh, Kokomo Speedway for USAC in Indiana. Um, Belleville was probably that place for USAC midgets very fast. Also very dangerous. Uh, that is the place where Josh Wise won at a relatively young age, and that attracted the attention of Tony Stewart. Uh, that kickstarted Josh Wise's career. It's also the place where Brian Clausen um, was killed, unfortunately. And, and USAC isn't going there for the time being, but that's a track that will certainly put drivers uh, outside of their comfort zone. And as for a non-short track, maybe a 1.5-miler, Alan, I liked Kentucky Speedway before it was repaved. All those bumps, half the field loving it, half miffed about being there. Uh, not many accidental winners on that old asphalt. And I just liked watching how young drivers I had never seen the place try to, rem- uh, try to maneuver around that uh, establishment. I like the question of asking which, you know, which track is best for evaluating prospects because it, it can let me ask you what, David, as a talent evaluator, which is what you did for for the past decade plus, uh, what are you looking for on the lower level? And and by that, I mean, you know, baseball scouts, if they're looking at a high school player, that high school player isn't hitting against, you know, pro-level pitching. So they they can't evaluate it that way. They can't evaluate a high school player versus a pro-level pitcher. But they are looking for something. You can't evaluate a driver on a super speedway or even a a mile-and-a-half track like Kentucky. So what are you looking for? At a short track, something that that's not the big leagues, but what can you look for that can maybe predict, be a predictor? In a word, efficiency. Uh, I don't want to see wasted movement anywhere on the racetrack. If you have a fast car, go out and lead with it. And if you're able to pass, make the pass. I do get a kick out of watching young drivers that are searching for grooves, 
Uh, again, we saw this in the ARCA race at Charlotte. Uh, Sheldon Creed spotter yelling at him to just stick to one groove, but that's a driver that is trying to find a place on the racetrack that will allow him to win a race. And I have an appreciation for a driver that even if it's the wrong thing to think, he is thinking. There is a plan uh, or a method behind the perceived madness. So efficiency one, but maybe just thought, maybe a game plan, even if it's just completely flawed logic. The fact that you're thinking about what you're doing for a young driver, it sounds kind of elementary if you're an older driver, but for a young driver... You don't really see that. I always touted uh, Ryan Blaney with this, Todd Gilliland with this, but I called it deliberate aggression. Yeah, they were really fast uh, when they were on the come up from uh, from legends and late models, but they were also very smart. They picked their spots uh, when to press in a race, and they realized when they just didn't have the equipment to compete for a win, so... If it's, if it's a, a race where they would have to lay back, conserve tires, and then figure out whatever they had at the end of the race and just throw it in there to see what kind of finish stuck, um, that's what they did. And those are some of the things that caught my eye, but efficiency and intelligence. Good stuff. Next up from Jeff Smith. So far this year, who has finishes that are most in line with their speed throughout the race and whose speed and finishes differ the most? Great question from Jeff Smith because, David, you put out the speed rankings each week and some would expect the the fastest car to have the best finishes. And we know that's not always true. So to Jeff's point, who has the the fastest car, whose speed, you know, lines up best with their finishes and who has the biggest difference? Well, most finishes are in line with speed. That is the strongest correlation since the invention of the second automobile, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Kyle Busch has the fastest car in the NASCAR Cup Series. He also has the best average finish. There are some notable differences, though. Kevin Harvick has the second fastest car. He's had the fastest car in four races so far this year, which includes the Charlotte All-Star Race, but ranks seventh in average finish, and he's winless. Kurt Busch ranks fourth in average finish, but has the 11th fastest car. I'm not sure how much longer that dynamic is sustainable. And another big disconnect to consider, we talked about him last week, Jimmy Johnson has the 12th best average finish, but only the 18th fastest car. Depending on how that falls, Alan, uh, there may be some playoff implications involved. How do you mean? Not well, he's teetering it. on the 16th. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's teetering on the 16th place line. Not good. Not good for the 48. Um, who's getting a, a bit un- impatient, I would have to imagine. Uh, next question is sort of a similar question, but from a different angle. This is from Mick Rose. They say money buys speed. Which team is underachieving the most in terms of money spent, and who is getting the most bang for their buck? How much money do we think Paul Menard is paying Roger Penske to sit in the seat of that 21 car? Because in central speed, the Penske cars rank third, fourth, tenth, and Menard in the number 21 Wood Brothers car. That, if we're being real, is 100% a Penske product, ranks 20th. Wow. Uh, again, I don't know. Contract details. I, I I can never profess to know what is going on in the back rooms, but that one stands out as a potential 
underachiever. Uh, but as for an overachiever, I'll nominate the JTG 37 car of Chris Busher. We talked last week about Busher's restarts from the non-preferred groove. I have long touted Trent Owens, but uh, their speed for the size of their program is decent, I would say. The 23rd fastest car in the series. And over the last five races, they've been faster than the Stuart Haas 41 car of Daniel Suarez and the Levine Family Racing 95 of Matt Benedetto. that team with a Joe Gibbs Racing Technical Alliance. Uh, JTG, as we know, as Ernie Cope told you, building their own cars for the first time in the organization's history in 2019. Good stuff. I like that answer. And finally, from Copacavana on Twitter, writes, Huh. Dear David, big fan here, it often amazes me to see a driver pick the wrong lane on a restart or teams make questionable talent selections despite your data existing and being available to well-funded teams. Are you aware of the racing industry taking advantage of your work? Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> I, 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 I know, uh, there are driver. I will be very discreet. There are drivers. There are crew chiefs. There are team engineers. Uh, there are key front office decision makers that exist as subscribers. Um, I am not saying this to brag. I am just no, making no. a point, but even, even with data, even with, uh, something at your disposal, you're still going to pull from other knowledge bases, right? There, there might be a reason that they're going to go against a statistical grain. I might not be privy to that reason, right? Um, I wrote last week for Motorsports Analytics about Clint Boyer going against the grain of about a 60% disparity on restarts at Bristol. He selected the inside as the leader. That was a bad call. He ended up losing the stage to Ty Dillon. Turns out, I don't think they knew what they were doing on that one, but that's not always the case. This is why I am very uh, modest about what I offer because while I know a lot, I have a lot of cool things at my fingertips, I can't profess to know everything. I don't know the psychology behind uh, drivers or crew chiefs or their thinking. I don't know if there is a cogent game plan. Um, some of these things are things to which I will never be aware. So... Uh, that happens. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they are, um, there's, there's many in the garage fully aware, um, that some hard statistical evidence exists, whether they use it completely up to them. I, uh, all, all I can do is hope that when it leaves my hands and ends up in their inbox, they can put it to good use. Nice. Nice answer. Great question from that. Copacabana kid. Uh, let's oh move on. Again, those were some really, really though, great questions that were submitted. So, uh, appreciate you asking, uh, and putting that out there on Twitter, David, because we got some great questions and provided some, uh, hopeful insight. A lot of good stuff for people to chew on. Let's move on to, uh, Pocono. We're going there this weekend. First time, first of two races this season. Remember in the 2020 season, they're only going there for one weekend in two races. So this is the last, Last time in the foreseeable future, they'll make two visits on two different weekends to Pocono. Um, a slight change. It's weird to call it a change, David, because they, they never raced what they intended with this new package. They made a change before they ever got to Pocono. But with this new aero package and engine package, they are racing the, 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 the tapered spacer, which lowers the horsepower to 550. And they are using the air ducts 
um, aero ducts that we have seen on most tracks this season. They're not using those brake ducts that we saw, say, in Atlanta. That is a change. So that is what teams will have to prepare for when going to Pocono. A uh, Like every week, it's a different challenge, some unknowns. So with what we know about the rules package and its change, what do you feel will be important this weekend, David, at Pocono? This is a great question, and I am comfortable uh, saying I don't know. And I, I realize that uh, I am supposed to be something of an expert, but I can't tell you that I have every answer. Um, and the reason that I say this is because there isn't one thing that stands out in Pocono. Um, we've talked about having the fastest car in a race, the conversion rate, uh, you win that race about 40% of the time. Dating back to 2005, the fastest car has won at Pocono only 35% of the time uh, and finished in the top three 60% of the time, um, which is below the 65% series-wide mark. So speed feels important. Those are some big straightaways at Pocono, but not a guarantee. And passing, here's a weird one for you, Alan. Only half of the last eight Pocono winners had a positive adjusted pass differential for the race. So you think of Pocono, you think of three very complex corners. It's called the tricky triangle for a reason outside of marketing, I think. But getting through those corners is problematic if if you can't make it through. You're not going to be able to pass for position when getting back to the throttle and now, with the lower horsepower, things have changed. So that's thrown a wrench into both of those equations. What I can tell you, Alan, this is a race where it's best to get track position probably whichever way you feel you can best achieve it. So we're going to see varying tactics in place. It may be pit strategy. It may be relying on a driver to score passes on long runs, and a lot of this will depend on how the race breaks. This is a long racetrack. It does not induce close proximity racing that uh, brings on a lot of restarts. We don't know how cautions will be distributed. So there are a lot of questions going into this weekend's race. And then throw in the new rules package. This is... This is one to watch. I, 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 I simply cannot tell you what is the most important thing going into it. Well, I, I suppose we'll let you pass on that one. But <laughs> we can talk restarts and we can talk sure. trends and we can talk the data that uh, you meticulously take down when it comes to restarts at Pocono. What should we expect on restarts? We know they're crazy. Maybe what aren't we seeing? I mean, we know what to expect and four wide, six wide, 18 wide, whatever. Well, maybe what aren't we seeing or what should we be looking for? Yeah, so I think along with ISM Raceway in Phoenix, this is where you're going to see some volatile activity on restarts. The outside groove is the preferred at Pocono. Occupants retained 81% and 76% of the time in the two races there last year, while the inside retained 35% and 33% of the time. The one thing that I will say about the inside line, Alan, at Pocono is that when it doesn't go, like when it doesn't get a good launch, 
the track is so absurdly wide that it offers an escape route. So if you see your favorite driver lined up on the inside behind Ryan Newman, don't freak out because unlike at other tracks, at least there is a method for a heady driver with some nifty reaction time that they can take to rectify the problem. That isn't a lost cause. No, the inside line doesn't score a good return, but it also is not a, a run killer as it is at other racetracks. And as always, we try to, uh, not, not really predict, but we, we usually give our opinions on what we'd like to see, uh, each weekend out there in Pocono. And David, you know, you and I were talking before. I feel just from a personal standpoint, Pocono has, has done such a great turnaround, just PR wise or look, admittedly, there were five, six years ago, people would make jokes about Pocono, right? I mean, people would be like, oh, we got to go there twice, 500 miles, but you know, the staff up there, the people, the culture, the improvements they've made, they shortened the race a little bit. Pocono has turned itself around to really be a fun destination race with fun people and little quirks like the restarts. So I would love a late race restart. I know that's a cop out because you could say that at any track, but because of the wideness and the volatility, I like that word when you use that, of uh, uh, potential that Pocono has, I would love to see a late restart and a driver just maybe send it and that or the race to that first corner. That's what I want to see at the end of, uh, come the end of the race. And I hope we get that on Sunday. David, what do you want to see? Yeah. And that's a good call because it, it seems to be that it, Pocono is either a, a late restart with a short run or it ends on a very long run. There is not what we'd call an intermediate run in, uh, in the mill there. So that, that might be a good call and that might be how you see a different winner, but. As I wrote in my speed rankings uh, this week on The Athletic, uh, Kevin Harvick has had the fastest car four times this year, does not have a win, but Pocono, he'll have plenty of speed this weekend. Stuart Haas cars historically going on the last three years are very fast on two-mile racetracks, but those corners, I'm telling you, that could potentially be an issue for Harvick. Uh, his preferred driving style of going deep into the corner before getting out of the throttle has been neutralized with the low horsepower rules. One of the reasons his pass efficiency numbers are dreadful this year. So I'd like to see which matters more to that number four team at Pocono. Is it Stuart Haas's speed, which is overarching organization wide across two mile tracks or Harvick's passing concerns. It is noticeable that he does not have a victory this season in the NASCAR Cup Series. Interesting. Well, go read that article and watch on Sunday on Fox to see uh, what the result is. We are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you are hearing, and I know you do because you respond to us and ask great questions, but please make sure to leave us a rating or review. That helps this podcast gain some visibility, and we really appreciate it. Your help in spreading the word is so appreciated. If you have any questions, if you haven't sent one in yet, please do it. We want to answer them. We just did. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, dare I say, what are you working on? Because you got a lot coming down the pipeline, man. Oh, I do. Um, Alan, I have one rule in life. If you finish dead last in the Coca-Cola 600, I will write about you for The Athletic. Eric Jones, I've been wanting to give him the thorough analysis he deserves 
it is coming this week uh, on The Athletic. Keep watch for that. Also, I have a fun article about the ARCA series coming to motorsportsanalytics.com. Hope you're a subscriber there as well because there's a lot of fun heading our way. Something tells me that Eric Jones article may have a few Christopher Bell mentions and I'm going to look forward to that and more eyeballs than ever are going to uh, see it and maybe uh, have some debate about what you write. I can just predict that right now. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so I look forward to that. Uh, I This is Thursday. If you are a regular listener, uh, you, I appreciate that, first of all, and that's when you're listening to this. But uh, check out my Twitter feed. I interviewed Tyler Reddick earlier this week, who is on a roll, a favorite of positive regression. David, his worst finish this season is 14th, and that was in a race he crashed in. So he is having a pretty damn good season to the point where Richard Childress called him a future cup superstar. So I asked Tyler Reddick about that. Go look on my Twitter feed, social media for that interview from Race Hub. And no trucks this weekend, but uh, we'll just all enjoy uh, Xfinity and Cup together out at Pocono. Keep it on the Fox family of channels, and you will see all the racing action there. We'll all watch it together. So we appreciate it. Uh, for David Smith and everyone he writes for, the Athletic Motorsports Analytics, again, congratulations to him. I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Progression. Stay positive, and we'll see you next week. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a lounge singer to be their office receptionist. Hello, this is Mickey Marquis, and you've reached the office of Doug and Associates. <laughs> Thank you very much. Catch me Tuesday nights at the Hotel Johnson. Hello? But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Doug and Associates, this is Mickey Marquis. Hello? For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today.